Bro. This episode of the Enhancement Talent Bro is brought to you by the word bro. Bro. World Championship Wrestling, also known as WCW, was once the biggest pro wrestling company on the planet. But just as quickly as it got to the top, it just as quickly flamed out of existence. On this week's episode of The Enhancement Talent, we conclude our two-part series by examining the rapid demise of a once-mighty wrestling juggernaut. Join us as we give you the rise and fall of WCW Part 2. All right. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Enhancement Town Podcast. I'm your host, the man, the rafters, the one they call Tony Lopez. With me tonight, as always, the other half of the amazing Lopez cousins, Dr. Bob Lopez. How are you doing tonight, Bob? I'm doing great, sir. How about yourself? Doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, excited for the second part of the rise and fall of WCW. Hope everybody enjoyed the first part that we got to you last week. Also, hope everybody out there had a nice, uh, happy, and warm Christmas. Um, and are looking forward to a nice, happy, and warm uh, New Year's New Year's Eve and New Year's festivities. Um also, out in beautiful Cary, Illinois, the Warsaw Blonde himself, Adam Kolovic. How are you doing tonight, Adam? I'm doing good. I uh, hope you guys had a happy holidays out there uh, for Christmas. And, uh, yeah, uh, any resolutions you guys have? I I just uh, I just have one New Year's resolution. What was that? To not read so many comments on social media. Uh, That's a good one geniuses like people who say uh, Kenny Omega's diverticulitis is a result of his wrestling style, his reckless yeah. wrestling style. Yeah. That was kind of the catalyst for this resolution that it's quite possibly the most idiotic thing that I read all year, and that's there's a lot of stiff competition in that area. Yeah, staying away from the IWC is definitely uh, high up on the list. Me, just in general, just getting in better shape. I need to do it. It's way overdue. I've made some progress, but not enough. Um, so in this in this new year, I'm really hoping to get a handle on that. How about you, Bob? Any uh, New Year's resolutions for yourself? To get more sleep. Sleep is good. 
Sleep is good. Well, I think sleep, all three of us could have some sleep now, uh, or could use some sleep since it is currently 1130 at night. Um, but yeah, without further ado, how about we head towards that, uh, well-earned sleep after we get this, uh, this episode in the can and get you a very satisfactory, very exciting part two of our rise and fall of WCW series that we've got going here. Bob, um, let's take it away. You start, we left off with, um, where were we? 1999, I believe, where things have crested, things have plateaued, and WCW uh, is on, you know, kind of on their their high kick, but now in a very, very, you know, I wouldn't say, yeah, a, a really short period of time, really, from 1999 up until 2001, just like a one-and-a-half, two-year period. This is going to be the swan song of WCW. So take it away, Bob. Let's start getting into the fall of WCW. Yeah, when we first spoke at, at the the last episode, we talked about the creation, um, the beginning, the separation from the NWA, and pretty much how WCW started losing money at the very beginning of the of their company's uh, creation and eventually, you know, took off and became this huge juggernaut powerhouse of a company and just couldn't do no wrong. And I think that's where a lot of the uh, problems ends up coming for WCW. They had this mentality of it's, uh, if it's not broke, don't, don't fix it. Um, and I think that's where, you know, they, like you just said, everything started to plateau and they continued to see that mindset of, well, we're, we, we were the best. Um, we, we don't have to do anything. And, and now I bring to you uh, the beginning, the fall, the descent, uh, 1999 of WCW. So the last time we spoke, 1998 was a huge success for WCW. Their attendance was up 47%. Their TV ratings were up 50, 56%. Even their buy rates for their shows were up 18%. House shows had been sold out for 49% of the time. Um, If the decisions we talked about by WCW in 1998 were bad, well, 99 gets a lot worse. And in in the end of this year, of 99, they end up close to losing close to about $15 million at the end of the fiscal year. Now... We kept going up, 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 and now I talk to you about the lovely decisions that they decided to do. So 99 starts off with Eric Bischoff calling a a group meeting backstage, and he presents to them this giant bombshell uh, that just occurred. WCW has struck a deal with NBC for six primetime specials. These primetime specials were similar to Clash of the Champions, it would go head-to-head with WrestleMania and SummerSlam uh, events, and the first date would be uh, set for special on February 14th of 1999. You guys re- recall hearing of these specials in WCW? I do remember, yeah, I do remember hearing about that, that uh, Bischoff had struck a deal with with NBC, which was surprising considering you know vince 
had a had a had a relationship with NBC going all the way back to the eighties, of course, with uh, Saturday Night's main event. So hearing that WCW had that, yeah, I was initially surprised. Correct. Yeah, they yes. struck this giant deal for six primetime specials. Go ahead, Adam. Sorry. Uh, yeah, as Tony mentioned, I, I had the same feeling. Um, you know, that's the thing. Um, you know, looking back at their history, whenever I think of it, uh, it's a lot of what's old is new again. Um you know, obviously the NWO we talked about in depth last episode. Um, I was a different revolutionary angle, but prior to that point, there was a lot of the same talent uh, in the heyday uh, that the WWE had being featured. And here you are again um, doing late night specials with NBC. Obviously, good business to try to get get the uh, the nose back up on things because it's prime time and it's network TV, which was still huge back then but that's that was my initial reaction to like oh this sounds familiar yeah definitely huge news for wcw especially to go prime time and have these huge events with the with wwe especially since they were starting to take off and starting to get uh people behind them as well let's talk about the very first night show of the year coming to us from atlanta georgia the home of goldberg uh, remember, Nitro now is, is three hours long, and this is what they presented to you for the very first Nitro of the year. The first hour, absolutely nothing happens. Um, nothing big, no no big events occur. But the second hour, right when they're going head-to-head with Raw, Raw's about to start, the cops decide to show up, and uh, they arrest Goldberg because he had been stalking Miss Elizabeth. Um the entire the entire event, according to her. Now, the main event for the card was supposed to be Goldberg versus Kevin Nash. So, when the cops come, uh, they take Goldberg away to the police station, obviously, to question him. And during this time, they're showing, when they're taking him away, that the police station is across the street from the arena, in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, just remember when I tell you guys that. Nash comes out, and he's talking to Ric Flair, who at that time is WCW president. And Kevin Nash comes out and says he knows who's behind all these shenanigans, and that person is Hulk Hogan. Well, remember I had told you previously that Hulk Hogan was gone. He was filming Muppets in Space. Well, miraculously, Hulk Hogan decides to show up at this Nitro, the first Nitro of the year. And he has decided that he's going to announce his retirement because he's going to run for president, if you guys remember that little angle that Hogan was doing. Um, But he decides he's not going to retire this night because he is upset that Kevin Nash would go out of his way and accuse him of being behind Goldberg's arrest. So he has to to defend his his good namesake. And and now the only way he could do that is by being in the main event with Kevin Nash um, for this particular... Um, Nitro. The third hour starts and the police find out that Goldberg's innocent. So now it's a race with time as Goldberg has to get it back to the arena in time for the main event. Hence, the arena is across the street from the police station, but as a half hour passes, Goldberg is unable to make it to the show in time, even though it's across the street. From the police station, and the announcer is going nuts, saying, "Is Goldberg going to make it? Is Goldberg going to make it?" Well, he doesn't make it. 
The significance of this Nitro is, if you recall, Hogan and Nash get in the main event and enter the Finger Poke of Doom. Adam, can you recall what the Finger Poke of Doom was? Oh, yes. Uh, clear as a bell. Um, this is for the championship. And, you know, yeah, the divided NWO. Uh, I remember the two circling the ring, Tony Schiavone doing his best to sell it. This is what professional wrestling, world championship wrestling is all about uh, before they go to lockup. Um, Hogan pokes uh, Nash with a, with a finger, you know, like when he goes, you, and Nash sells it like no movie's ever sold uh, before, during, or since in his career, flops to the mat, and is uh, counted down uh, for the count of three, and voila, uh, President Hogan is now the world champion in a thrilling, thrilling matchup. That is, that's, that's, that's guaranteed to put asses in the seats because uh, you just described it to a T, and I want you to remember what you said about Kevin Nash selling moves like he's never sold before because it gets better. Um, and the, also the significance of this show is also, this is a significant show because this is a night that Tony Schiavone decides to go out of his way and say, if you're thinking, like you mentioned, this is where the big boys plays, this is where professional wrestling is. And if you're thinking about turning over to the station, a previous wrestler that we used to have under our, uh, our roster uh, named Mick Foley is going to win the WWF heavyweight title tonight. Yeah, that'll put asses in the seats as a, as a direct comment Tony Schiavone makes at that time. And it just so happens that the audience watching Nitro at that time all decide to turn the channel from Nitro to Raw to see what's going on and watch Foley win his first belt. When Tony Schiavone makes this comment, exactly 600,000 viewers turned the channel from WCW's Nitro to WWF's Raw and the significant change that definitely put asses in the seats for the WWF at that time. February of 99, WCW starts to see Raw pull away in the ratings. WCW responds to this by trying to get more mainstream, and they decide to have Bret Hart face comedian Will Sasso in a feud. Will Sasso is comedian from Mad TV. That went really well. And they decide... We need to give another up-and-coming star time with the mic, especially with the mic here. They give this up-and-coming time to Stevie Ray from Harlem Heat, as Harlem Heat had separated. And Stevie Ray is now given a push with a lot of talking time on the mic. That definitely did not deserve to happen. February of 99 was February 14th. Remember the NBC special I just talked to you guys about? That they were hyping up Clash of the Champions style s it's going to compete with wrestlemania SummerSlam, or the likes yeah february 14th comes and goes because that was a set date the then the special is postponed which eventually means it's canceled which eventually means that no one in wcw ever brings it up again because it was just bischoff being bischoff and nothing ever occurred to the deal bischoff decides that at this time he needs to reach out to the latin audience and he creates a latino wrestling show with Telemundo, using WCW and CMLL wrestlers. He spends $300,000 to create a set and get everything ready. And right before the show is start to start, uh, set to start with Telemundo, CMLL backs out of the deal with WCW 
and they sign with the WWF, and that is when Super Astro is, is created. And Bischoff pretty much gave away $300,000 for nothing. February 15th, the episode of Nitro was fun and important for the wrong reasons. We start with Ric Flair getting stopped on the way to the arena, and he's attacked and left in a cornfield. I don't don't know if you guys remember this one. Flair's left in a cornfield, and the announcers are going crazy because they say, who are these mass men that are attacking Ric Flair? But yet you clearly see that they're members of the NWO. Uh, one of them's even wearing an MWO shirt, and then eventually when um, they take off their masks, the announcers start going crazy and say, oh my god, it's members of the NWO behind us. Flair's left in a cornfield, and he somehow makes it to the side of the road where a gentleman in a pickup truck pulls up and picks up Flair, and instead of driving Flair to the police station, he takes Flair back to the arena. Here comes Flair with an axe handle in his hand. He comes out to attack the NWO in the ring with his axe handle, but because it's WCW and they love Flair, he's instead getting beat down by the NWO, and they crush him in the ring. Um, and this ends up bringing, uh, bringing in a 3.9 rating for Nitro, and Raw ends up getting a 5.9. The concept of this is this is the biggest marginal gap during the entire Monday Night War when it comes to ratings. Raw destroyed Nitro and um, with a 3.9 rating there. Bischoff is now pissed after he sees this rating. Raw completely destroyed him by over two points, and he calls a group meeting. Nash and Bischoff decide that the reason that the ratings were at 3.9 is due to Ric Flair, Bret Hart, Chris Benoit, <laughs> Dean Malenko, The Big Show, which was Paul White, uh, the Giant, Chris Jericho, Raven, Canyon, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Roddy Piper. These men are all singled out in this group meeting backstage as the reasons for ratings drop. And what happens, their TV times and their pushes are now stopped and decreased immediately, and the big show slash Paul White slash Giant decides to see the greener pastures and ends up leaving for the WWF as he walks out. So, WCW, again, trying to stir the pot and decide to find out what's good. Decide, remember I mentioned in the last episode, we're going to take off Juventud Guerrero's mask because he doesn't need it. And uh, we promised him a push, and his push was a victory over El Dandi. Well, they decide this time that uh, Rey Mysterio is next, and they need to unmask Rey Mysterio. And who needs to be the man to unmask Rey Mysterio? Well, no other better than Kevin Nash because, yep, he's the booker. The same Kevin Nash that when WCW decided to uh, put the tag titles on Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko, Nash went out of his way to call these men vanilla midgets. Uh, Nash ends up putting down his uh, creative control card last minute instead of Malenko and Benoit uh, being the tag team champions. He pulls out him and Kevin Nash or him and uh, Scott Hall to get the titles again. Um, and uh, Malenko and Benoit never won the tag titles at that time because Nash said that Hall and Nash were better for ratings as tag champs than Malenko and Benoit would be. So Rey Mysterio is unmasked, and Kevin Nash starts to notice that uh, people backstage are pissed off at him. 
Uh, so what does he decide to do? He goes out and he lets Rey Mysterio beat him uh, for a clean victory in the middle of the ring. And after let, putting Rey Mysterio over, he decides that this is a move he's going to fall back on every time for when people get pissed off at him. He's going to say, well, hey, man, I put over Mysterio. I made him look good. Like, I, I couldn't, if, if I was just worrying about myself, I wouldn't have done that. That's Kevin Nash for you. So he uh, he decides to schedule Nitro. And again, I'm telling you guys that Nitro is three hours long. This is a Nitro that Kevin Nash presents to us at the end of February, beginning of March. He schedules a Nitro with the first hour showing absolutely no wrestling at all. During this first hour, they show wrestlers partying backstage. They show vignettes of the Nitro girls partying as well. Conan's rap music video is played in its entirety several times, especially on repeat. I know you were a big fan of that rap video, Tony. Oh, yeah. I think I saw one of those Nitros where they played it, I swear to God, like three or four fucking times. This is probably the one we're talking about. They play a skit where Hogan comes out and makes fun of Ric Flair. Then they play a skit where they show Kevin Nash and Hogan watching a video of Hogan making fun of Ric Flair. <laughs> and then they show a skit of Nash, Hogan, and Tori Wilson going out to dinner and making fun of Ric Flair. This was your Nitro that Kevin Nash produced. Um, do you guys remember the pay-per-view Uncensored? I talked to you guys about it the last episode. This is where uh, everything's unsanctioned. Uh, no rules. This is also the one where Dustin Rhodes and the Blacktop Bully were, were, were fired because of uh, blading. Yep. Yeah, I remember Uncensored. 1999's Uncensored pay-per-view gave us the unsanctioned main event of Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan in a first blood match for the heavyweight title. <laughs> Which is funny because if the match was unsanctioned, the title should never switch hands on any account, but this is WCW. If Flair is to lose, he retires for the 700th time. <laughs> if he wins... He's in control of WCW forever. Remember the Sandlot? Forever. That's how they emphasize this here. So remember, it's a first blood match, meaning that anyone who starts bleeding, the match is considered over. We have a winner. Well, if you remember, WCW had banned the word blood on its program. So the match is never really hyped up well. They can't call it a first blood match because they can't say the word blood here. So the first concept for the... So they can't hype up the match at all. And when it actually happens and the match is going on, Flair is cut accidentally in the middle of the match. And if you recall any Ric Flair match, whenever he bleeds, he bleeds like a stuck pig. So he starts bleeding. The match never stops. Yes. Hulk Hogan starts bleeding. The match also continues. During this match, Hulk Hogan is the bad guy. Ric Flair is the good guy. And Kevin Nash decides to do a double turn where Flair turns heel. He attacks Hogan with a, a tire iron. And he pins Hulk Hogan in the middle of the ring for the victory of a first blood match. match. So many things that I described with that match... Just do not make sense. 
but this is what WCW was giving us in 1999. Hogan's first Nitro back as a face, and he goes up against DDP in the main event. Nitro gets a 3.5 rating as him as a face. Compared to Monday Night Raw, they have X-Pac versus Triple H, and uh, Raw gets a 6.51 rating. So now they lose by over three points. Hogan being Hogan says, hey, the ratings were only bad because DDP was in the main event. He's not on my level. Uh, had someone else wrestled with me, we would have been uh, competing with that uh, the high rating that Raw got. But it's because of DDP that those ratings came down. Remember when WCW, I told you, went out of their way and, and they grabbed their prize possession, uh, Bret Hart, and they spent over $3 million on him? Well, Kevin Nash wasn't a big fan of Bret Hart, so he didn't really want to push him that much. Bret Hart in the back decides to come up with an idea of Bret Hart versus Goldberg. And the best way to do this is in Canada, because Bret Hart's from Canada. It'll go over like crazy. Kevin Nash decides to nix the idea backstage, and word gets to Bret Hart as he finds out. So what's he do? He confronts Kevin Nash about it backstage in front of the boys. Kevin Nash immediately backtracks and says, no, the only reason I nixed it is for storyline purposes. I want to build a feud between you and I, and I want the boys to think that we're not, uh, we have heat between each other. Um, but then Bret, Bret Hart eventually needs surgery, and whatever push slash program he said to have at that time is uh, canceled because his unfortunate timing is due to his uh, brother also passing Owen Hart Pass at this time. So whatever push Brett was about to get was now pushed back. The last episode, we talked about the Ultimate Warrior and how he had returned. And he's getting paid a shit ton of money. His gimmick was um, a cloud of smoke would come out. He would show up and then he'd disappear in another cloud of smoke. Well, all of that was used via a trap door. This trap door we talked about at the Fall Brawl pay-per-view. Uh, in one of our episodes in the past, and we spoke about this fall ball pay-per-view as well with regards to the British Bulldog. Well, the British Bulldog had injured himself at that fall brawl, landing on the Ultimate Warrior's trap door, and he injured his back, and that needs uh, that causes for him to have a, a fracture. He needs surgery. Uh, during this time, the British Bulldog gets a staph infection. He's actually put in a full body cast, and he's fighting for his life. Uh, Eric Bischoff thanks him for his time and uh, fires him via FedEx um, just to let him know, thanks, we appreciate what it is that we, you do, but uh, you're no longer necessary for us here. I just told you guys that uh, at Unsun Uncensored, uh, Flair had won an unsanctioned first blood match versus Hogan. So now he's WCW president for life. Well, Running for uh, WCW must have driven Ric Flair crazy because he gets institutionalized in a mental hospital. And who's the person that brings him into the mental hospital and drops him off? None other than Roddy Piper, which makes a lot of common sense there because if someone needs to be in the mental hospital at that time, it's Roddy Piper. But Piper and, and Ric Flair's son, David Flair, are the ones that bring him in and they drop him off, and he's institutionalized. So he's no longer at service to WCW. 
since he is institutionalized, they need a new president. Enter Charles Robinson. If you remember Charles Robinson, he's a referee who supposedly looks like Ric Flair. Roddy Piper doesn't like the rules that Charles Robinson is running. So he gets into a argument with him, and Roddy Piper ends up getting arrested, storyline-wise, when he attacks Charles Robinson. The following week, Ric Flair shows up, and he claims that Arn Anderson bailed him out of the mental hospital, which, again, makes absolutely no sense. And the only way they could settle this is Ric Flair versus Roddy Roddy Piper at the next pay-per-view, where if Piper wins, he becomes president of WCW, even though Ric Flair had won a stipulation where he's president for life. Macho Man at the end of uh, 97, beginning of 98, had injured his uh, ACL and he had torn it. And he um, he had been out of, out of service for quite some time. So he decides to uh, 99 to be back. And he comes back along with Scott Steiner and Buff Bagel. And certain changes are noticed when all three of those men come back. They're all pretty much jacked to the gills, steroid-wise muscles on top of muscles, and um, you just notice this craziness that is, is coming on with the Macho Man Randy Savage even more. During this time, Macho Man is able to get his brother Leaping Lanny Poffo a contract with WCW. Lanny Poffo signs a contract for $150,000 a year. WCW never used him at all, and they paid him $150,000 a year to stay home. It gets better. One of Adam's all-time favorite wrestlers, Kevin War- Warchals, better known as in, in the WWE as Nails. Nails is paid $250,000 to wrestle two dark matches by WCW and never used again. Tank Abbott the former UFC heavyweight um, fighter, um, is brought in. He's paid $700,000 to come in. Eventually, the feud of Goldberg, I think they only had one match. After that, he's put in three count, and he makes $700,000 to do that. Alex Wright, das Wunderkind, $400,000 to be repackaged as Berlin, and come out and be like this uh, German um, yes. leader, uh, whatever the hell he was. Uh, that 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 didn't go well. And um, your boy Van Hammer, Tony, two hundred thousand dollars to be uh, was paid to be a hippie, a hippie jobber. <laughs> it was pretty much his gimmick. WCW loves their mainstream attention, their mainstream media. They pay two hundred thousand dollars to Master P, uh, the rapper. And his contract is also based on appearances. And remember when Dennis Rodman, I told you he sued WCW for uh, for defamation and fraud? Well, he's back. And uh, he signs a giant contract with WCW. And they're hyping up his first uh, show to come back on uh, July 5th, Nitro. And Dennis Rodman being Dennis Rodman, when they hype him up, he decides not to show up Nitro. And uh, <laughs> they paid him not to come. Yep. Fun times. I, you know, I wish I was in <clears throat> the job market back then. 
I could have made a lot of money to do nothing. We could have. We could have. It would have been good times. We could have also helped them uh, hype up uh, Slamboree. Um, because that was one of their prestigious pay-per-views that they would do on a yearly basis. Uh, Slamboree was coming out, and for the first time, it sold badly. Um, And badly to the point where WCW actually needed to give away tickets. Uh, If you remember, Bischoff had had sued WWE, and they claimed that uh, um, libel against WWE because they said WWE would claim that WCW was giving away tickets to their show in order to look more packed. Slamboree of 99, 7,000 free tickets were given away uh, for everyone to come and see Ric Flair versus Roddy Piper for the presidency. Well, Flair wins, and he continues to be president, but Eric Bischoff is back. He uh, he had left at the end of uh, a 98. He took a two-week vacation, and that two-week vacation ends up turning into a few months that he's off of TV. And uh, he comes back and reverses the decision. And um, Flair is n- not the victor of the match. And guess what? Um, Bischoff's back in charge of WCW now. So Flair is no longer WCW president for life. I know you guys are disappointed. For the second well, the very time. next night on Nitro, guess what? Flair is made president again the very next night on Nitro. Uh, Piper is now the commissioner, and Bischoff comes back as a powerful uh, executive for the company, is what how to des- uh, describe it. WCW then decides to spend $50,000 to run an angle where Kevin Nash is in a limo, and the limo is crashed into by a Humvee. Do you guys remember this angle? They they kind of based it off of uh, the Steve Austin angle where he's attacked and they don't know who it was that uh, attacked Austin and ends up turning out to be your boy Rikishi. Well, WCW does their version of this angle and Kevin Nash is in a limo. It's attacked by a Humvee. Uh, the mystery was who was the driver of the Humvee that attacked Kevin Nash? We needed to know. Was it Randy Savage, who at the beginning uh, of the skit was the man that pulled the Humvee into its, uh, the limo into its place? Nope. Was it Sid Vicious, the man who returned the following week at the Great American Bash and attacked Kevin Nash? Remember Sid Vicious, the man who got fired for almost killing Iron Anderson 10 years prior? Well, he's back again. Uh, nope, it wasn't him. Um, Lex Luger knew. Lex Luger had a photo of the driver of the Humvee, but he wasn't telling anybody. He uh, he wanted everybody to come out of their way and try and find out, but but the photo was never shown. And originally, the concept was that it was going to be uh, Hulk Hogan um, that was going to be the driver of the Humvee. But WCW kept running the storyline on the fly, so Hogan decides to get pulled out of the storyline. And then one day out of nowhere, WCW shows in the crowd. A female that's just sitting there uh, in the crowd watching their, enjoying her, her WCW Nitro that night. And that female is former WWF Women's Champion Sable slash Raina Marrow slash Mrs. Brock Lesnar. They show her in the crowd and uh, Bischoff 
says during the uh, during the segment that uh, maybe it could have been her that was the driver of the Humvee. Um, and then they also start dropping clues that maybe it's Carmen Electra. Carmen Electra was, <laughs> I guess, a celebrity that was big during this time. She was dating Dennis Rodman, and uh, she was a friend of Kevin Nash. And um, maybe it was her that, that was the driver. But uh, eventually, um, the angle just completely drops. No one ever finds out who was the driver. And they decided to drop $50,000. A whole few weeks dedicated to the skit. And we never find out who the driver was. And they just drop because that's WCW. Nitro, after the Great American Bash, was in New Orleans. I mentioned earlier that WCW had signed Master P. Master P, the rapper, was from New Orleans, and he claimed that he alone uh, could sell out the stadium (laughs) in New Orleans. So WCW decides to write the entire Nitro around Master P, and only 55 thousand tickets are sold for the show um do you mean 5500 5500 i'm sorry uh the the i'm sorry i'll read that one again um no, he cool. did the whole episode the whole episode of uh nitro is written around him the arena holds 55,000 fans and only 15,000 tickets sell for the entire arena written and based around master p in New Orleans, his hometown. Hulk Hogan would soon decide to show that he's pissed off with the way the company is going, and he goes on the Man Cow Radio uh, station uh, show um, media outlet. And during this time, he decides that he's going to call out D. Malenko and Chris Jericho <laughs> and names them, and he, he, he calls them out for whining about their spots in the company. Jericho gets pissed off about this, he decides he's had enough. He actually takes a pay cut and he leaves WCW um, to go get signed by the WWF. And he's immediately brought in to debut with The Rock. And Chris Jericho just takes off from there. And instead of spending money to re-sign Chris Jericho, who is very, very, very well liked by the boys in the back, WCW rewards Master P. And his bodyguard, and pays his bodyguard, his name is Swole, if you remember. Swole is offered a $400,000 contract to come and protect Master P. WCW continues their their wonderful uh, streak here. And again, they hold another Road Wild. And if you remember the Road Wild pay-per-views, those are free. So they have this other show. A lot of people don't show up to this free show, but again, they make no money off of it. So now Bischoff's pissed, and he call and he has a team meeting again, and this time he decides to call out Raven. Raven, I guess, was talking shit about the company, just like Hogan had done prior, and he calls out Raven. He calls out Conan and Rey Mysterio, because earlier on a Nitro, they had cursed live on TV. Excuse me. They, he calls out the public enemy and Buff Bagwell because they had refused to do jobs. Um, Bagwell's was enough to the point where he refused to job to Ernest the Cat Miller, and Ernest the Cat Miller ended up um, fighting him backstage and whipping his ass. 
And um, he offers the talent the chance to leave if they don't like the direction the company is going. And immediately Raven gets up and walks out and heads back to ECW. After this uh, meeting, Billy Kidman, Conan, Rey Mysterio go up to Bischoff and they ask for their release. And Bischoff, being the man of his words, turns them down and says no. Uh, remember when I told you that Sid Vicious was back now? Um, he came back after being fired 10 years previously for almost killing Arn Anderson. Well, he becomes, he, he, he gets in a storyline with Goldberg and he starts bragging that he's undefeated. Um, and he's undefeated since he's returned. He's only been back a few weeks and he comes out and claims that he's 55 and 0 since he's been back. Even yes. though the fact that he has not had 55 matches since he's been back. And if you were actually watching Nitro and Thunder during that time, he actually had lost live on TV several times the week prior. <laughs> but WCW at its finest. September 9th, 1999, SmackDown debuts for the WWF opposite WCW Thunder. And it completely destroys Thunder in the ratings. 4.1 to 1.9. Um, and this is when the the heads, the executives decide, all right, we've had enough. They come in for, for um, WCW. And on September 10th, 1999, Eric Bischoff is released of his duties by WCW executives. After SmackDown beat the shit out of them in ratings, Bischoff is relieved of his duties September 10th, 1999. All this big talk about what I've told you about Bischoff. How do you guys view him from what he did as a third string announcer to becoming the top dog over Tony Schiavone to getting fired several years later? What's your opinion on Eric Bischoff? I've always... Oh, man. I don't know if it's his personality or the fact that he he never feels like he's in the wrong, really. But I, I can't stand Bischoff. I really I really can't um, to this day. I mean, he, if you really look at it, he kind of lucked into the position that he had. You know, I, I think that he was in the right place at the right time as far as getting the call to uh, be the head of WCW going into uh, their big time period with the NWO. Um, I mean, he, I never really saw him as any kind of creative genius either. He stole the, he stole the idea of the, of the NWO from, from Japan and anything else that he tried to do on top of that didn't, was it was always hit and miss. Uh, the only thing he really I would give him credit for is recognizing the importance of uh, cruiserweights. He would never put them in the main event, but he knew that you know having them in on the roster and in a significant part of the card uh, was important. Um, but yeah, I just think that he he was a blowhard. He was arrogant believed his own hype and it ended up you know biting him in the ass majorly and yeah that's what i think eric bischoff 
How about you, Adam? Well, I'm going to give a little more credit in the sense that um, if you read his book, I guess he got his start uh, selling meat out of a truck. Uh, and then he wound up uh, working side by side with Vern Gagne in the um, dying days of the AWA. The guy was a salesman uh, from day one. Uh, he, he did one hell of a sales job to get himself in the position. And yeah, obviously people thought someone like a Tony Schiavone was going to get that role, but he must have sweet talked the crap out of the Turner brass. I think he was smart enough to recognize how to work the Turner brass and tell them what they wanted to hear in order to get where he got to. Um, last episode was mentioned, you know, he cut costs a lot by, uh, Oh, let's tape at Disney. Um, you know, let's do this. You know, he knew how to get what he wanted. But once he got to where he wanted to go, it was like he just laid out a bunch of acid and took it all at once. <laughs> and that's the last uh, about nine months Bob has described there from paying ridiculous salaries to ridiculous people bringing in celebrities nobody cared about booking cockamamie angles and most of all it just looks to me like it, it just it just plays out like a movie like some schlub off the street gets famous you know hangs out with famous people and and just gets sucked in for the ride hulk hogan and kevin nash played this guy like a fiddle just completely politically every which way and he counted out to them every single time and this is where you wound up so i think again he knew how to work the execs to get to where he was but once he got there he had no fucking clue what to do that's that's my uh that's my summary of eric bischoff both are definitely great summaries and uh i'm glad you mentioned a lot of what you did uh, especially, um, you know, his, his vision that he had um, creating the the cruiserweights, bringing them in, that was something different that no one was doing. But then as we spoke in the last episode, he pretty much went out and told them, you guys are not going to put asses in the seats. No, one, no one's here to watch you guys. When many people actually were. Um, Adam just mentioned right now, he likes to spend money Um he, he was saving money by, by, you know, having Disney there uh, and, and, you know, not having to cut travel costs, which was great for the company. But then yet he's promoting giant pay-per-views, uh, road wild, yearly basis, giving away money, giving away great matches and not making any money off of it because he's a motorcycle enthusiast. Um, I forgot to mention to you guys the rock band Kiss. He pays Kiss $500,000. <laughs> to base a wrestler uh, character. Um, Brian Adams was originally uh, the choice for the Kiss Demon. Um, and he's going to base a pay-per-view off of this, uh, off of the Kiss Demon, and also the rock band, and the band's going to play a concert during this uh, pay-per-view. And, and he offered them $500,000 to do so. Brian Adams is no longer the Kiss Demon a week later. It's given to Dale Torborg. And... Um, yeah, the concert never happens because once Bischoff is fired on September 10th, 
He's replaced by executives Bill Bush and Harvey Schiller, who are now in charge of WCW. What they decided to do is uh, eliminate the Road Wild pay-per-view, which had been you know losing money nonstop. They cancel all the stuff going on with Kiss. And they immediately bring back Dusty Rhodes, Kevin Sullivan, and Kevin Nash, and they make them the booking committee because what we need more is Dusty, who always thinks about himself, and Kevin Nash, who always thinks about himself, and make them the bookers again. Their very first pay-per-view was Fall Brawl that year. The company was in such shambles that they never even advertised the card or a match on the card. This leads to a .30 bio rate, which is the worst in WCW history. This was September of 99. October 3rd of 1999, enter Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara, two former head writers of WWF during the Attitude Era. Uh, They are hired by WCW to change things up. The first match ever in the Russo era was Juventud Guerrero versus Evan Courageous. The match would have a run-in from Bret Hart. And the best part about this is that no one ever told Juventud and Evan Courageous. So when Bret Hart comes in to run in, they just stand there looking confused, having no idea what the hell to do. And yeah, it was just hilarious upon arrival. Russo's first big pay-per-view was Halloween Havoc 99. The main event is Goldberg versus Sid, and this is for the U.S. title. And during this match, this wasn't the main event, I apologize. This was one of the matches on the card. Goldberg versus Sid for the U.S. title. And during the match, Sid starts bleeding. So the referee calls for stoppage of the match uh, because Sid is bleeding and they can't have that. The next match is Ric Flair versus DDP. And again, Ric Flair being Ric Flair starts bleeding. And when Flair bleeds, he bleeds profusely. This match continues and has never stopped. Hogan versus Sting was the actual main event of this uh, card. And this is for the WCW World Heavyweight title. Hogan comes out and he lays down for Sting. And the match is over. The 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 bell never rings to start the match. But Hogan lays down, Sting pins him, match is now over. So a new main event is created, and it's Sting versus Goldberg, title versus title. So when Goldberg wins, he's announced as a heavyweight champion, but all the match announcers keep saying, well, this is the non-title match, because originally it was considered a non-title match, and that's what it was called at the very beginning, but... They decide on the fly that they're going to make it for a title match now, and they give Goldberg the belts at the very end, and he walks out with both of them. So the very next night on Nitro, the Sting versus Goldberg match we find out was an unsanctioned match. So the title versus title concept is now uh, wiped out, and the heavyweight title is now stripped of Goldberg, and it becomes vacant. So what best way to do uh, a vacant title um change is we're going to have a 32-man tournament uh, for the belt, and it's going to be decided at the WCW Mayhem pay-per-view. This tournament was a lot of fun um, because it was for the the heavyweight championship belt. Medusa was brought in and placed in the brackets, and she ends up losing to Ming, 
And the importance of Medusa being in this is yet when the first round matches are over, Medusa somehow finds her way in the second round, even though she had already lost, and she replaces Leparka uh, just for the hell of it. WCW never explains why they just put Medusa <laughs> in the second round, even though she had lost in the first round. And the finales ended up being Bret Hart versus Chris Benoit, um, and Bret Hart ends up becoming your champion. Remember I mentioned that Harvey Schiller came in, and he was one of the executives of Fire Eric Bischoff uh, the month prior. Well, he leaves, and he takes a job alongside the New York Yankees, and he's replaced by Brad Siegel, uh, another WCW executive. Uh, I bring up these names because they, they come up further on down the storyline. So we dedicated a whole episode in the past to the craziness of what Vince Russo matches are. What is one of Vince Russo's favorite stipulations when it comes to matches, Tony? Uh, let's see. Anything on the pole. Anything on the pole is correct. November 15th, we're given the Nitro where we have the famous pinata on a pole match. Um, there was, was a pinata. He put all, all the luchadors in there uh, to feud for a pinata and try and grab the pinata that had money inside of it. The concept was that the pinata was on the pole and you had to reach up and grab it. Well, during the match, the pinata actually falls and is laying in the corner of the ring for a very long time. <laughs> no one of the wrestlers knows what to do. Um, then eventually the wrestlers grab the pinata matches over. They reintroduce Dr. Death Steve Williams as he comes out with, uh, Ed Ferrara in his corner, who's playing the character of Oklahoma and Dr. Death comes out and he pretty much beats the shit out of the luchadors, um, takes their money that they had found inside the pinata and just walks off WCW at its finest. This was the same Nitro that Sid cuts his famous brain is half the size promo. Um, if you remember that wonderful promo that Sid graced us with. <laughs> and following this promo, the main event is made for Nitro that night. And it's Sid versus Kevin Nash and a no disqualification match. Adam, would you like to tell me how that match ends? I don't remember who wins, but I believe someone was disqualified in a no disqualification match. It is it is correct. Uh, it is a no disqualification match that ends, and you guessed it, a disqualification. <laughs> December 23rd, Nitro is a really important Nitro because this is the one where Goldberg is pissed off and looking for Russo backstage in his limo. Goldberg was planned to shatter the limo window with a sledgehammer, but he didn't want to do that. Instead, they taped a small pipe to the inside of his wrist, and while he's running backstage to look for Russo, the pipe falls. So he finds the limo, and he starts hitting it with his hands and his elbows, and eventually shatters the, the window with his elbow and slices his bicep wide open, uh, causing him to a need uh, emergency plastic surgery, and Goldberg is out for a nice period of time due to head surgery. That, my friends, is the end of 1999. So I take you over to 2000, and this is where the shit hits the fan. I'm going to take a 10-second break. Just <laughs> my Give me a second. Mm-hmm.
All right. I can breathe again. Ready, guys? Ready. Yep. All right. 2000 is fun, fun, fun. Remember when I told you in the past episode that WCW enjoyed playing hot potato with their title belts? Yep. I'm about to give you this wonderful stat right now. In the year 2000 alone, the WCW World Heavyweight Championship changed hands 25 times. The United States title, 11 times. The tag team title belt changed hands 21 times. I forgot they had a hardcore belt, but that changed time that changed uh, hands 19 times. And the cruiserweight title changed hands 14 times. WCW was such a hit that at the end of 1999, the company lost $15 million. $15 million at the end of a fiscal year that they lost. Remember that. January 2000, they decide that they're no longer going to do three hours of taping. They're going to reduce it and go back to two hours because that was really helpful for them when they had that. But when you reduce two hours uh, instead of the three, that immediately causes the company to lose money due to revenue from advertisements. The first Nitro of the year, Terry Funk is brought back, and he's introduced as a new commissioner. He's introduced as a new commissioner um, on this Nitro because this Nitro is, again, in North Carolina, the home of Ric Flair. And when Funk is introduced as the commissioner, the fans immediately start chanting for Ric Flair. He had been written off of TV at this time because Flair decided to, uh, the original concept was for Flair to be the commissioner. And like always, he was going to come out and Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash were going to beat his ass in the middle of the ring and embarrass him in front of his fans in North Carolina. Flair turns him down, says no. Terry Funk is made the commissioner. And guess what happens to Terry Funk? He gets brought out, and he gets beaten down by Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash. And uh, that's how the first Nitro of 2000 occurs. At the time, two of the main players for WCW uh, that were pretty much seen in the main event picture were Bret Hart and Jeff Jarrett. Well, Bret Hart at this time is now concussed by Goldberg, and Jeff Jarrett also gets concussed. So we need some new some new blood at at the as the face um, of the company. It is during this time that Vince Russo decides that he's going to have a battle royal for the heavyweight champion. And who was his decision to be the winner of the battle royal? That's right, Tank Abbott, the former <laughs> UFC heavyweight champion. Or no, he wasn't a heavyweight champion. You hope for a former UFC heavyweight fighter. Uh, that Bischoff brought in, and even Bill Bush, who absolutely knew shit about wrestling, said, <laughs> nope, this is this is a very bad idea. And Vince Russo was removed of his head writing uh, duties at the time, and he's now created and put in the booking committee with Dusty and Kevin Sullivan um, because this was horrible. I'm going to give you some stats uh, of what WCW was doing under Vince Russo during that time um, as, as the head writer. Their pay-per-view buy rates went down from a 0.52 to a 0.26. 
their attendance for shows were averaging 4,628, and those attendance records went down to 3,593. And the ratings from Nitro actually went up slightly. It went up from a 3.0 to a 3.1, and and Russo was hyping up the fact that he doesn't understand why he was uh, removed of head writing duties if the ratings were going up with him and the charge. So, Jared's gone. Bret Hart's gone. We need a new champ. The initial plan is let's make Kevin Nash the champ. But Kevin Nash, being a team player and a company man, decides, nope, we can't do it. Let's give the belt to Chris Benoit instead. The problem was Chris Benoit at the time absolutely hated, hated, hated Kevin Sullivan, who was the booker for WCW. So Benoit, DiMalenko, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, Conan, Billy Kidman, Shane Douglas all on this night decide we're going to ask for our releases. We don't longer, we no longer want to be with WCW. Benoit had just asked for his release, and the company decides to make him the heavyweight champion anyway. Yes. And Bill Bush decides, look, gentlemen, I'm going to remove Kevin Sullivan from any booking on Nitro and Thunder, and it's not going to affect any of you men. And all of the men agree. We finally have... Um, an agreement that they're not going to go away uh, and Kevin Sullivan's going to be removed. Well, hours pass and Bill Bush decides to change his mind and he realizes that uh, he's not going to let these wrestlers tell him what to do. So he sends them all home except for Chris Benoit because Chris Benoit, he wants to wrestle that night. When Benoit finds out, he's super pissed and he says, if, if my friends go home, I go too. And uh, he even offers to drop the belt that night. Bill Bush tells him no. And then eventually decides, you know what, fuck it. Just go home, take the belt with you. Oh, and by the way, on your way out, actually, leave the belt. Leave it with Nick Patrick. And a week later, he sends all the men uh, their release so they could sign. Uh, as we know, Benoit, Guerrero, Malenko, and Saturn all sign the release. Uh, they go on to become the Radicals in the WWF, and they take off. And Conan and Shane Douglas decide not to sign the releases because they already had previous issues with the WWF with regards to Max Moon and Dean Douglas. So they saw the writing on the wall and they stayed with WCW at that time. Many people considered the radical stable that I just mentioned with Benoit and, and his friends showing up in WWE as pretty much the nail in the coffin for WCW when it came to just kind of giving up uh, what they had going on. Um, the Radicals show up in WWE. WCW needs a no storyline. And uh, who better to, to lead the charge than Ric Flair? Ric Flair is brought back. And they decide that they're going to have uh, a match for the heavyweight title that night. Now follow me here. This match is going to be WCW versus the NWO for the vacant heavyweight title. WCW is represented by Sid. The w NWO uh, is going to be represented by Jeff Jarrett. The issue is here, if Sid beats Jarrett, he would not become the heavyweight champion he would have to go on and wrestle another match against Kevin Nash. 
And if he defeats Nash, then he could become the champion. <laughs> but Jeff Jarrett wins, then Nash would be giving the given the title belt because he deserved it. Of course he did. But if you remember, I had just told you Jeff Jarrett was concussed and not cleared to wrestle. So he can't wrestle, and WCW decides that that night, Sid is going to wrestle Don Harris of the Harris Twins. Oh, my God. The Harris Twins were Ron and Don Harris. They were Skull and Apple in the WWE. They were Jacob and Eli Blue from the Blues Brothers in the WWE. Well, Sid has to wrestle Don Harris of the Harris Twins. Wow, you remember Again, this. I need you guys to follow along with me. In order to get the shot at Kevin Nash, Sid needs to beat Don Harris. Well, no better, no better way to do this showdown than a cage match, right? During this match... Oh, no, this wasn't the cage match. Um, during this match, Don switches with his brother Ron, and Sid wins over Ron Harris. So he heads to the back. While he's in the back... It's announced that Sid pinned the wrong Harris twin. So he needs to return to the ring to restart the match. Well, Sid never comes back. And he's only, the only way this match could end is if Sid comes back or else there will be no main event for the world title at the end of the show. Again, Sid never comes back. So he's counted out and he loses the match. Except... When it's time for the main event, Kevin Nash and Sid both come out again. And who else shows up? None other than Jeff Jarrett. He returns and he hits Kevin Nash this time with his guitar. And Sid is your new heavyweight champion. Except three days later on Nitro, we are reminded that Sid pinned the wrong Terrace twin. So Sid is now stripped of the heavyweight title, and a match is now set up because since he's stripped, Kevin Nash is now your champion. There's uh, The belt does not become vacant. It's handed over to Nash. And a new match is made where Kevin Nash and Don Harris, the original twin, are going to wrestle Sid inside of a cage. And Sid needs to defeat both of them in order to become champion. And somehow, Sid being the mega superstar that he is, he's able to defeat both, and he becomes champion again. Did you guys follow me? Barely. Yeah. I mean, I needed a, like a Venn diagram and some, and some string, but yeah, I followed you. That's fun times. So... WCW, as you can see, is struggling, struggling, struggling. And as always, they look for a savior, a spark. Enter the return of everyone's favorite, Hulk Hogan. (laughs) Hulk Hogan immediately comes out, and he starts talking trash. And he says that there's all these young bucks in the back uh, trying to run the company. And it's time for him to teach WCW and these young wrestlers a lesson. And the first person he calls out that's a young wrestler is none other than 45-year-old North Riverside's finest, Lex Luger. 
So now we that get a few. Whip, that whippersnapper. That whippersnapper, yeah. Of Hogan and Lex fucking Luger. A few weeks pass by, and Hogan being Hogan is once again on a radio show, and this time he decides to call out Billy Kidman. He says that Billy Kidman can't even sell out a flea market if he was wrestling on the show, and says that anyone on the roster under 40 can't even draw, and it's because of him that um, that attendance records are, are starting to dec- uh, increase uh, for Nitro. It's also during this time that someone decided it would be fun to give a live mic to Scott Steiner and let him go out on TV <laughs> and talk. Scott Steiner, being Scott Steiner and juiced up to the gills, as Tony says, decides to go out on, on television, and this time he decides to run down Ric Flair. He says that Ric Flair is the reason um, the show was sucks and the ratings suck, and uh, he pretty much goes off on him for a long period of time, enough that the show has to be re- rewritten because he goes out and uh, starts going off on tangents. WCW's pissed at Steiner for what he did, so what they do is they send him home. Uh, he can't wrestle on Thunder that following week, but his, his punishment is to go home, miss Thunder. Oh, and by the way, uh, we're going to pay you to be suspended at home. It seems Instead like of pushing the young guys. Work. Yeah, no, it gets better, Adam. It gets better. We're, we're only in the, uh, the beginning stages of early 2000. Instead of pushing young guys forward, Super Brawl pay-per-view was Hulk Hogan versus Lex Luger, Ric Flair versus Terry Funk, and the main event was Sid Vicious versus Jeff Jarrett versus Scott Hall. Prior to this match, heading up to it, Scott Hall was so fucked up uh, during a UK tour, he couldn't even board the plane. To, uh, to fly back to the States. And he ends up missing his flight. And he also ends up missing Nitro. A few days later. He threatens Vanilla as fuck Terry Taylor. Who's a road agent for them. With the guitar. And says during, our, during the angle. I'm going to hit you with this. Terry Taylor takes this as a real life threat. And Scott Hall is pulled off. Of uh, the shows for the week. But yet he's still. Um, he's still allowed to wrestle in the main event. WCW is so pissed at all this that they're threatening to fire Scott Hall, but during this main event, he magically gets injured during the match and claims a work comp injury. So now, as you know, for a work comp injury, by law, you cannot be fired. Uh, So WCW can't touch him. During this same Super Brawl, our boy Tank Abbott, the one that's supposed to be the heavyweight champion, he wrestles in another of uh, Vince Russo's finest, uh, a leather jacket on a pole match versus a wrestler named Big Al. This is famous for when Tank Abbott grabs the leather jacket. At the end of the match, out of nowhere, he fucking pulls a knife out and he puts it to Big Al's throat. And on on camera, he yells out, I would fucking kill you. Um, and, and the camera catches this. Tony Schiavone immediately tries to save face and say, look, it looks like Tank Abbott is trying to shave Big Al's beard. <laughs> <laughs> the problem was Bill, Big Al was clean shaven. 
And yeah, that was uh, caught on live TV. Um, remember I told you earlier as well that Bret Hart was concussed and he couldn't wrestle? WCW said decides to send him a letter informing him that um, they were going to cut his salary in half now due to the stipulation in his contract, which said if he was not able to work, they can change his salary on the fly, which is something that they did. Uh, Bret Hart was not happy with this decision. The following uncensored pay-per-view was Hogan versus Flair in a strap match. Remember I told you how fun uncensored pay-per-views were? Uh, We had the first blood match the last time. Well, this time we have our famous strap match again. And WCW had a well record with the strap matches. If you remember our last show, we talked about it. Strap match, Hogan versus Vader. Hogan wins by having touched all four corners of the of the ring posts with Ric Flair, and that's how he won the match against Vader. Well, this one is Hogan versus Flair in a strap match. And again, you have to touch all four corners to win. And what happens is during the match, Hogan hits his big boot and leg drop on, on Flair, and he pins him in the middle of the ring for the one, two, three without touching any of the four corners. And Hogan wins with the big boot uh, in his strap match against Flair, which is definitely a good time. <laughs> with Uncensored being so bad in March of 2000, Brad Siegel, who I mentioned earlier, decides I need to bring back Bischoff and I'm going to bring Bischoff together and team him with Russo. And they're going to run WCW for me. Bill Bush, the executive who uh, relieved Bischoff of his duties, said, nope, nope, you bring him back. I'm leaving. And Siegel thought he was just joking. Nope, Bill Bush actually got up, walked out, and quit the company because of this decision. So originally the thought process was for Russo to lead the young generation called the New Blood versus Bischoff and the old veterans called the Millionaire Club. And they also wanted to improve ratings for Thunder so it could uh, compete with SmackDown. And one of Russo's ideas was, we also need to bring back the Ultimate Warrior because we want him to start a feud with Goldberg, uh, which would have been a barn burner with regards to ratings. Um, But luckily that never happened. Um... Immediately, the thought process between the two falls apart um, as Bischoff and Russo both debut with a new blood uh, on their side versus the Millionaire Club. They decide to strip the titles off of everyone. Um, so Sid Vicious uh, comes out and he declines. He says, I'm not dropping my belt. And Bischoff grabs the mic, tells Sid Vicious in front of the crowd on a live Nitro, Sid, I'm not scared of you. Look, you don't even have any scissors in your hand. And this gets zero reaction from the crowd. This is after March of 2000. Remember, Sid stabbed um, Arn Anderson with a pair of scissors, almost nearly killing him. And again, Bischoff sees he gets zero reaction from the crowd, and he repeats the joke again, and no one knows what the fuck he's talking about. (laughs) Definitely WCW at its finest. The next step is that they're going to introduce new talent to start to promote this new blood era. 
enter ECW heavyweight champion Mike Awesome. Mike Awesome shows up on Nitro one night and he destroys Kevin Nash. And everyone starts talking about it. Holy crap, the ECW heavyweight champion is on Nitro. The problem was that Awesome was still currently under contract to ECW. And he was also their heavyweight champ. So WCW and ECW agreed that Awesome would show up on Nitro and the WCW announcers would plug ECW's up-and-coming pay-per-view. WCW agrees, Awesome shows up, destroys Kevin Nash, WCW never plugs the pay-per-view like they agreed. So now WCW has to go out of their way and pay ECW a nice six-figure settlement to get Mike Awesome released from his contract, only for him to get pushed for a short period of time, and then he's eventually made the fat chick thriller and that 70s guy, and Mike Awesome is destroyed as a character in WCW when at that time he was one of the most agile big men out there that could do a shit ton of uh, wrestling and crazy moves and stuff like that, and WCW buries him. One of my favorites, and Adam's going to love this, is during this time with Bischoff and Russo running things, the announcers, especially Tony Schiavone, would state that with the new regime, there's every match is going to have a real winner slash loser. There will no longer be any disqualifications during their their uh, their matches. As soon as Shivani says this, it's immediately followed by three disqualifications in a row. <laughs> On Thunder, Sid wrestles Harlem Heat 2000. That's right, Harlem Heat 2000, which is Stevie Ray and Big T. Uh, Big T was Ahmed Johnson off of the steroids. Uh, he had added like 200 pounds at that time. And uh, on Thunder, Sid wrestles both of them in a no-DQ match. And the match ends in a disqualification. I want to see if you guys can remember this. Um, Sting wrestles Vampiro in a first blood match. And a first blood match, you got to bleed. Uh, this match ends in a no contest because the, at this time, WCW starts dropping blood from the ceiling. You guys remember when they were doing this lovely skit where they would do that? Oh, show? for sure. It was well, like you can't do that on blo- television. Exactly, yes. Uh, the blood falls uh, accidentally during the match, and it <laughs> pours on Vampiro. So it's, uh, it's called a no contest. And um, what's famous about this night is this is the debut of uh, David Arquette. If you remember, WCW had a hand in, in, in hyping up a movie uh, based on wrestling called Ready to Rumble in April of 2000. That's one of Tony's favorite movies of all time. Um, the main character played by David Arquette was a huge wrestling fan Um and, and, and to incorporate this together, WCW thinks this will be a great idea to bring in Arquette and, uh, and start plugging him into some WCW storylines. Um, well, Russo decides, let's shock the world and, and fuck it. Let's make him the champ. Um, and during one of the matches on Thunder, uh, during a tag match, David Arquette somehow pins Eric Bischoff and he's made new WCW heavyweight champion 
in order to gain mainstream attention that never ever really came by this decision. So after Arquette uh, eventually loses the title, they decide that what better thing to do with the title than play musical chairs with it again. They decide that at 51 years of age, Ric Flair needs to be champion once again. He wins, he becomes a champ, and the crowd shows you how much they love Ric Flair because when he's champ, the crowd goes apeshit. The ratings even increase for Nitro at this time. And how is he uh, rewarded for increasing ratings and becoming champion? WCW decides to have him fake a heart attack angle. And he's stripped of the belt. The belt is now handed over to Jeff Jarrett. Good old Kevin Nash comes out and say, Hey, I want a shot at the main event and the belt. So now your, your main event is set up for Kevin Nash versus Jeff Jarrett. Remember the red blood that I told you that Vampiro had dropped on him unexpectedly? Well, at this time, if you remember, WCW still cannot say the word blood. Duh, they would call it red substance, is what they would say. Oh my God. Um, and they never really explained what the hell it was or what was going on with the storyline. But this red substance um, comes out during um, the Nash and Jarrett uh, main event. And it falls completely, completely down and completely misses Kevin Nash during the match. Um, to the point where, like, Nash has to, like, slightly move over just to get, like, a little bit on his shoes. And this red substance uh, <laughs> must have been, like, Kevin Nash's kryptonite. Um, because Adam said earlier, the finger poke of doom, he sold that like no other. Well, this red substance was right up there with it. Um, and he sells this just like it. He goes down. Jarrett wins. And uh, he's the champ. But don't worry, because on Thunder, two days later, Kevin Nash is uh, back to his full strength, and he wins the belt back uh, two days later. On Nitro, Kevin Nash, the following week, remembers that Flair was the actual champ and never lost the belt. And Flair magically was recovered from his heart attack, and he can start wrestling again. Well, Nash says, I'm going to give you the belt back. You go on and become the champ. So Flair says, okay. So Jeff Jarrett's pissed off, and he comes out and he issues a challenge and say, I want my shot at the belt again. This time Ric Flair says no. So Jeff Jarrett goes backstage, and who's magically backstage? Ric Flair's family, and he kidnaps Ric Flair's family. They just happen to be close by when he goes back there. Flair agrees to put the title up, and he loses the belt to Jeff Jarrett. I wish I could be making this shit up, but I wasn't. This is all shit that, if you research it, happens. June of 2000, Vince Russo himself decides that he needs a shot at Ric Flair. He challenges him to a cage match, and when Flair puts Russo in the figure four, cue the red substance, Tony, it completely pours down on Ric Flair and Vince Russo in the middle of the ring, and this red substance completely incapacitates Flair, but Russo, who also got doused in it, is perfectly fine, and he pins Flair for the victory. Again, the announcers can't say blood, so they keep yelling, red substance, red substance, red substance, it's pouring out. <laughs> well, my favorite is, during this time, they're hyping up the new blood angle with the stable, and yet they say new blood every single time they're allowed to. 
I can't I can't skip this WCW Nitro episode without talking to you about the five star classic that Russo books for this show. It's a horse stable match between Terry Funk and Chris Candido. <laughs> yeah. This is a match where they wrestle in a horse stable and Terry Funk almost gets kicked by a horse to which Funk turns around and yells, You fucking horse, I'll <laughs> kick your ass. And it's also caught on live cameras, which is definitely a great time. I think they should have booked that match immediately. <laughs> exactly. Funk versus the horse. That's at this point done. in 2000, at this point in 2000, Turner executives are starting to see the writing on the wall for WCW, and they're looking for exit doors. This company is just handing over money, losing it hand over fist, and a concert group, a concert event group called SFX comes out and offers $500 million to purchase WCW. Holy shit. $500 million. And Ted Turner immediately turns it down, saying that WCW was what put TBS on the map, and he needs to stay loyal to them. So he turns on 500 mil. Remember that. The following Nitro, following Russo's Flair blood match uh, with the Red Substance, um, we get a match where Ric Flair and Reed Flair are going to wrestle against Vince Russo and David Flair. This is uh, the stipulation: is if Russo loses, he loses his hair. If Flair loses, this is his 150th retirement match, and he'll have to retire. Well, Flair loses the retirement match. And they end up shaving his head, too, at the time. And the storyline was for Flair to find a stipulation to come back soon after. But instead, Flair decides to go get surgery on his rotator cuff that he had injured. And when he comes back, his hair is also fully grown back. Everyone forgets that he had retired for the 150th time. Everyone also forgets that uh, he uh, he had his head shaved. So that storyline is pretty much dropped immediately. June 15th of 2000, Russo gets pissed and he takes it out on the staff. Kimberly Page, who is the wife of DDP, she's sent home because she doesn't want to do an angle with crazy-ass Scott Steiner. So she quits the company, actually, because of Scott Steiner. Lex Luger is sent home for refusing to job to Chuck Palumbo. Miss Elizabeth, who was being paid $156,000 was sent home for not wanting to be in a bra and panties match. Um, he told her, you do absolutely nothing here. <laughs> and then Scott Steiner is sent home because he also threatens to go after Vanilla's fuck Terry Taylor. Fuck yes. At one point during one skit, Ernest the Cat Miller, who is now the commissioner, uh, gets into an argument with Kevin Nash and says, you know what, Kevin Nash, I'm getting close to sending you to jail. And when Kevin Nash says, why are you sending, why are you going to send me uh, to jail? He goes, because if I send you home, the company will pay you to stay home, which is exactly yes. what they did when they sent Scott Steiner home after threatening Terry Taylor. By June 2000, WCW had already lost $80 million. How do you make money? You need to spend money. WCW says we need more eyes on the product. 
They spend $50,000 on advertisements in the USA Today. USA Today, huge, prestigious newspaper worldwide. And they want to plug up the upcoming Monday Night Nitro. Monday Nitro. So they want to plug this show. What happens? Someone fucks up the ad, and the ad appears in Thursday night's paper to plug in the nitro that had already occurred three days prior, and they spent $50,000 to do that. We have finally reached the time of July 2000, which is known as Bash at the Beach. Um, This is the one where Jeff Jarrett lays down for Hogan. Hogan leaves because he's pissed. Uh, Russo comes out and calls him a big, bald son of a bitch. Um, And Hogan walks out of the company. Jared is made uh, in the main event with Booker T, and that's when Booker T finally gets the title. Uh, This is a huge, huge, huge story for WCW. If you got a chance, please watch the Dark Side of the Ring episode on it because it's a fantastic episode where they pretty much tell you the whole story of the bullshit that's going down. Um, and following Russo's wonderful promo where he bashes Hogan, Hogan's had enough of WCW. Um, this doesn't work for him at all, brother. He files a defamation of character lawsuit versus Russo and WCW, uh, for everything that Russo said about him. Russo is scrambling at this time to regain the company's fan base. Enter Matt Williams. I bring up Matt Williams because he... Uh, we, we we don't know who he is, but I bring him up because his job for WCW is he's the director of research. He spends an entire year polling fans at shows, asking them what they liked about WCW, what they disliked, what w should, WCW should change, uh, what the product means to them. And then he also found people that uh, said that they were changing from WCW over to WWF. And when he asked them why, the biggest response out of fans was that they wanted more wrestling and less sports entertainment, less uh, backstage vignettes that meant nothing. And he took this year's worth of data and he came to Vince Russo and he showed him, look, this is something that we could do. This is what the fans are asking for, and they want to come back to our company because they love us and they love the roster, but this is what they want. Russo takes a year's worth of data, and he throws it in the garbage, and Williams quits immediately on the spot for the way that Russo treats him. Remember how I told you that by June, WCW had lost $80 million? By the end of July, WCW lost $7 million, meaning that in the entire month of July, they lost $7 million. In the year 1999, they lost $6 million in the entire year, and in July, they somehow managed to lose it in just one month. That's impressive. Good times. Changes are needed ASAP for WCW. So they start having discussions of cutting costs. And this begins with the wrestlers' contracts. Hogan, Goldberg, Luger, Bret Hart, DDP all had guaranteed deals and killing the company, and they're making a shit ton of money. 
But in reality, the company was already dying due to the loss of revenue, the changing of uh, Nitro from to, uh, to two hours from three hours really, really hurt them when it came to uh, revenue. Uh, house shows were decreasing in attendance. Pay-per-views were decreasing. Merchandising and advertisements were also decreasing. So they were losing money hand in hand. This is an awesome stat that said if every single wrestler in the company in 2000 worked for free and was not paid at all in the year 2000, the company still would have somehow lost $40 million with all the shit that they were doing. That's fucking impressive. Indeed. WCW executive continued to see the writing on the wall and Bischoff is demoted to consultant and Russo is decided to put in charge of everything. Thunder tapings are now canceled on Thursdays, and they're going to be started to get filmed on Mondays following Nitro. The next pay-per-view is called New Blood Rising, and somehow they're able to say blood during this show. And it sells 5,000 tickets at the very beginning, but yet WCW still has to give away 3,000 tickets uh, for free. And out of those 3,000 tickets that they give away for free, only 1,300 people actually show up to the event. Uh, for those free tickets. Tony in the last episode mentioned that one of the reasons why he loved WCW was just watching the wrestling aspect, especially on WCW Saturday night. WCW Saturday night ran for 27 consecutive years on TBS. This was the cornerstone upon which Ted Turner had built TBS. In July of 2000, the show was canceled to save money. WCW decided to fire all of the luchadors on the roster that were not named Juventud Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. And this definitely, when they fire all the luchadors, this definitely helps WCW out. Because at that time, they were getting fired, or they were getting sued by Sonny Ono for racial discrimination. And this actually (laughs) helps out their case, because they've decided that they're going to fire every Mexican on the roster, too. Good times. (sighs) At the beginning of the year... For 2000, WCW had 234 wrestlers on the roster. At the end of the year, they were down to less than 50 with all the cuts that they were making. September 11 Nitro comes from North Carolina. And who gets celebrated in North Carolina? Ric Flair. So this episode of Nitro is built around another Ric Flair return. Remember I told you he was gone with rotator cuff surgery? The brilliant idea is for him to come out and immediately be arrested and taken off of the show. This leads fans to be super pissed off and chant bullshit for a good five-minute period that you just hear (laughs) live on Nitro um, from the crowd just being super pissed off. And by the way, at the end of the show, guess who was the number one contender for the heavyweight title? Flair. Any guesses, gentlemen? Vince Russo was the number one contender at the end of the show because the following Nitro, September 25th, was from Long Island, bro. And who needs to be contender and get a heavyweight title shot in Long Island? None other than Vince Russo. Guess who becomes heavyweight champion in a cage match? Vince Russo. Um... Everyone was super pissed when Arquette became champion. Vince Russo makes himself heavyweight champion of WCW. And the following week on Nitro, 
he decides that it's time that, to vacate the heavyweight championship, the title that he bought, uh, that he won, because he was actually concussed. He, he, he really did have a concussion. And he comes out and he announces uh, Booker T versus Jeff Jarrett in the first annual ever San Francisco 49ers on a pole match. What is that, you ask? We've talked about this in a previous episode. Four boxes in each corner, one of them holding the title belt. So the wrestlers had to go ahead, open up the boxes, find out which one had the belt, and then then you're the winner. The first box they open was a blow-up doll. (laughs) That'll put asses in the seats. The second uh, box they open... uh, No, Judy Bagwell was not. I I, I don't even mention her on this one, but that's a good call. The second one is a framed picture of Scott Hall. Yes. The third picture is uh, Tony's favorite coal miner's glove. And then uh, the fourth box obviously had the belt inside of it. But yet, when the fourth box was destroyed, the belt falls outside of the ring. And the technicality is that whoever grabs the belt first should be the winner. Well, David Penzer, the ring announcer, grabs the belt. So technically, he should be announced the winner. But he ends up grabbing the belt and handing it over to Booker T, and that's how Booker T becomes the champ. Uh, David Penzer hands it over to him. That win that I just announced by Booker T where he becomes a champion, that was the 20th title change for the heavyweight title in 35 weeks in the year 2000. In 31 years, from 1949 to 1980, including the, uh, the, the NWA lineage, the heavyweight title championship belt changed hands 20 total times in those 31 years wcw had it change uh hands 20 times in 35 weeks just to show you the fun shenanigans that were going on there bro bro in october of 2000 rumors of a sale of wcw start coming around and these rumors are led uh, by Eric Bischoff getting a, a, a group together uh, to go ahead and try and make a purchase for WCW. This group is the Mandalay Bay Sports Entertainment Group. In October 23rd, 2000, Bischoff and his group announced that the purchase is done. They have purchased WCW, and Bischoff is now the owner of WCW and October 23rd of 2000. But just like the NBC deal that I told you about um, in the past, Bischoff says that uh, on the 23rd, the, the everything's going to be announced, and that day comes and goes, and nothing is brought up again. At this time, Vince McMahon even starts to draw interest in purchasing the WCW and um, and wants to find out more about it. During this time, WCW goes on a tour of Australia, which is one of their very last successful tours that they have. Just like the good old times, they can never do something fun without getting in trouble. Hugh Juventud Guerrero. Oh, yeah. Hoovy in Australia decides to uh, smoke something that's laced with PCP. And he goes on a drug-induced rampage where he's running around naked. Uh, in the, the lunchroom, the hotel, he gets uh, he eventually gets taken out by the tasers and the police officers, and WCW gets fined $1,850 uh, for what Juventud Guerrero does. Juvie is immediately fired, but 
no one ever tells him that he's fired. He ends up finding out online that he's no longer working for the company. Well, remember when I told you that the tour was a success for WCW? They ran four shows there in Australia, and they sold out every single show. Well, the contract that they had signed, again, WCW loves their contracts, they decided that any seat that was unsold, they would have to repay back. These were sold-out shows. But the seats that were unsold were also included when it came down to the TV cameras and the production stuff. And and now we're talking about those seats having to be repaid back to the, um, the arena. So WCW had to pay back for seats unsold, which included the seats where the cameras and the equipment were planned. Four shows combined, WCW had a successful tour, and yet they had to pay back the arena $400,000 for unsold tickets for the seats used by their their production crew and cameras. Remember, Bret Hart has um, has not been wrestling. He's been concussed. He's staying at home. WCW decides to re-sign him, even though they had cut his salary in half. And uh, they re-signed him. Well, I guess they regretted that later because on October 20th of 2000, uh, they decided that they're going to fire him uh, two weeks after they had re-signed him. And um, th- they let him go from his contract. Russo would kind of slip off of TVs at this time because he, uh, he had his post-concussion syndrome, which, again, he did have a legit concussion. So um, he he walked away from WCW during this time. And to show you just how much WCW was getting run down, in 2000, Starcade, WCW's number one pay-per-view. That was their version of WrestleMania. On the first day that tickets were available to be sold for Starcade, 926 tickets were sold on the first day available for fans. WrestleMania 17 that year, which is the greatest WrestleMania of all time, on the first day of tickets available, 48,395 tickets were sold. (laughs) So there are two big companies head-to-head, 926 tickets for WCW Starcade were sold that year. Main event for Starcade in 2000 was Scott Steiner versus a major surprise superstar. Ric Flair even came out to hype him up and said that this wrestler, the superstar, was just as big as Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. And who is this superstar, you ask? None other than Sid Vicious. Sid is back again. And soon after he's back, he decides that he's threatening to walk out of the company because he's told to job the Steiner when originally he said he was only supposed to lose via countout. So Sid comes, gets pissed, threatens to leave, but eventually still loses his signer. And that's something that Austin and The Rock would do because Flair said that he's a major superstar. (laughs) To promote the pay-per-view, the main event, uh, to leading up for Starcade, someone once again decided that it's a great idea to give Scott Steiner a live mic. This time he decides to go off on DDP and his wife. During his live promo, Scott Steiner says that Kimberly should allow DDP to get a sex change so he can get his 
ball sewed back on and face Scott Steiner face to face. When Skyner walks to the back, DDP is waiting for him. So it makes repeats the comment about not having any balls and threatens uh, and tries to go after Scott Steiner. The only problem is Scott Steiner has an amateur wrestling background and he's steroided up to the gills and he pretty much whoops DDP's ass and hands it to him. What's Skyner's punishment for whooping DDP's ass and going on, on live air and talking shit? He's given the biggest singles push of his career and made champion and destroys everyone in his path. At the end of 2000, WCW lost $62 million due to horrible booking, decreased pay-per-view buy rates, house shows, and advertising. That leads us to 2001 the final nail in the coffin for WCW. At the beginning of 2001, Thunder is now canceled completely as it is constantly being beaten on ratings by Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, Yes, that just shows you how bad that was. Remember I told you that this... Yeah, Dean, Dean Kane's the man. Remember I told you that uh, SFX had came out and offered WCW $500 million to purchase yeah. them at that time, and Ted Turner says no. Mm-hmm. In January of 2001, Time Warner and AOL strike a $183 billion deal to merge. What's big about this merger? Ted Turner is no longer in charge, and he can no longer make decisions for WCW. On, October, on, on January 1st of 2001, Bischoff and Fusion Media Ventures announced that they have purchased WCW. Purchased. That means that they tell the press, they tell wrestlers, they tell anyone that wants to listen, their family, everyone that is in the circle. WCW has been purchased by Eric Bischoff and his group Fusion Media Ventures. On January 1st of 2001. The problem is they forgot to mention that the deal would not be finalized until 45 days later. Bischoff immediately decides to change things up for WCW and he brings in Adam's boy Johnny Ace as his head booker. At this time, many people actually like Johnny Ace, so this was seen as a really good decision for Bischoff. Bischoff would then try and turn and shut down the company because he wanted to rebuild it and relaunch it. So their upcoming pay-per-view that was coming up, Bischoff decided to cancel it and not promote it, and he wanted some time away in order to start fresh. Time Warner says no because since it technically still owned the company at this time, they didn't want they didn't want to lose any more money. So they refused to allow Bischoff to shut down the company, and he had to continue to watch it struggle. March of 2001, Nitro sets a new ratings record of 2.05 for ratings, a record low all time. With this record low, Time Warner starts to investigate the WCW books more closely, and then they realize how fucked they really are when they see the results. These results come out. And Bischoff's lead investment group, Infusion Media Ventures, decides to step away from the purchase. Bischoff decides, as he lost a huge investor, 
that he's going to offer um, Time Warner $70 million. Uh, and then he's going to also put down a down payment of $5.7 million and repay the company $2.15 million over the next 20 years. Time Warner tells him no. Time Warner then puts the nail in the coffin for the very last time for WCW when they hire new CEO Jamie Keller. Jamie Keller was the man that absolutely wanted nothing to do with professional wrestling. He didn't want it on TBS anymore, and he completely shuts down Nitro and uh, and Thunder and says no more wrestling will be shown on TBS. This kills Bischoff's company completely. Bischoff runs from station to station to try and find another network such as USA, Fox, but to no avail. And finally, on March 20th, after telling the world on January 1st that they purchased WCW, March 20th, Fusant Media um, Ventures completely pulls out of the deal within their 45-day time slot, and the purchase of WCW is, is completely crushed. With them pulling out, who's left standing? No other than Vincent Kennedy McMahon. And he decides that with the price tag dropping down, he will now purchase the company of WCW for $2.5 million. And when the library of WCW gets included in there, the final sale price is $4.2 million. A company had offered WCW $500 million the year previously. They turned them down. In the end, they lost so much money, Vince McMahon comes in, buys his competition that he was feuding with all the way back from the 1980s for $4.2 million. And on March 26, 2001, WCW opens and closes doors for the very last time as they are no longer a company. They're bought out by their biggest rival in competition. And that, my friend, is the rise and the fall and the death of WCW. Yeah, I remember when uh, that final, you know, figure was put out of how much W or how much Vince uh, paid for WCW. Who was it? Chris Jericho was like, shit, if I would have known how much it was, I would have tried to buy it myself. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amen. Well, Bob, I have to tip my hat to you, man. That was very entertaining, very, very detail-driven. You have everything that you could have ever wanted to know about the rise and fall of WCW in that list. A lot of stuff I had forgotten. Yeah, um, yeah. To just, you know, the the Terry Funk with the horse and (laughs) just... The, the lengths that they went to to be fuck ups is is just amazing and astounding. See yeah. when I when I do you know I, I'm I'm trying to stay away from the IWC, but when I do see idiots who are comparing AEW, saying oh they're just going to be the new WCW when they're going to be out of business, listen to this episode because if you do. You'll you'll see that AEW is nowhere near 
the fucking shit show that WCW was in its last days. You know, with that, you know, like like we like we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, I think fans nowadays are too young to remember what those final days of WCW were really like. You know, they were. It was just. It was w- like watching the Titanic sink, like an inch at a time, week after week after week after week, until it finally just went under. It was. It was sad, but it was also funny because they just couldn't. They couldn't get out of their own way. It was. I, I remember when Thunder first premiered. It was a big deal, but by the end of it, Thunder, nobody gave a fuck about Thunder. Like you said, Ripley's Believe It or Not was getting more viewers than it was. Um, yeah. And, Thunder, and Thunder, time- debuted with the, Thunder debuted with a 4.0 rating when it debuted. That's how mm-hmm. fucking on fire it was. That's how yeah. everyone was all excited about it. Yeah. I mean, just end times WCW was just insane how how it went from like you said end of 1998 they're on top of the world and in three years they're gonna be done that's insane i i I don't think that's ever happened that that's never happened really before in the wrestling business and i don't think it'll ever really happen again because if there's a wrestling if, if there's somebody out there who knows they're wrestling they've We'll look at what happened with WCW and learn their lesson and be like, okay, we're not going to fucking do this. This is how you don't do it. Um, yeah. Was there were several so times. It was, go oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, as you so clearly illustrated um, for two episodes, my final takeaway is rudderless ship. That would be what I would classify WCW as, you know, we talked at the beginning of last episode about, you know, our, our fond memories of it, you know, having another company to watch, um, enjoying the programming, uh, when it was at, when it was at its, when it, when things were good, things were good, but what killed it was just horrific leadership. I mean, if you look back, like him or not, the McMahon family is, Owned WWE for all the all these decades. Vince Senior, Vince Junior, now Triple H uh, has a has a big stake in it. Then Vince is out of the picture. Even Vern Gagne kept a AWA going for a long time. You know the, the Memphis wrestling. You know you had someone to answer to who was the be all end all. And again, hats off to you for me as well. Just pointing out <laughs> how many people they tried to to have run this thing and none of them were able to do it successfully. You had that, the, the blip, um, you know, during, during the, the hot time, but you know, wrestling as a whole was, was hot back then too. Um, it was just, but you know, Bischoff was to his credit, was able to get them to a place they hadn't been before. But then, like we said, they just, he didn't know what to do once, once he got there. So rudderless ship is, you know, just piss poor leadership from day one till the end. Yeah. 
Well, there was, I will, there was a few times where I, I would try and go out of my way to, to emphasize the roster and who was mm-hmm. on the roster at that time. And, I mean, so many times that roster was fucking stacked, like talent after talent. And how you could take a company like that and still find a way to fail was just outstanding. And then WWF during that time pulls away. And who's in charge of them pulling away? Steve Austin. Mick Foley is at the top. Chris Jericho is at the top. Chris Benoit is at the top. Eddie Guerrero is at the top. Undertaker. All all Undertakers, all people that were under your roster at one time that you decided could not draw, could not bring in money for you financially, that people would not want to see wrestle. And it's just like, you know, that's what happens when you don't fix what's not broke according to you. Like, you, you you had that that whole concept of the veterans stay at the top. We don't push any real new guys to start taking the veterans' spots because then the veterans get pissed and push them back down again. The only one that really, really, really made it up was Goldberg. And, I mean, eventually DDP, but he was already up there in age two. But, I mean, Goldberg is the one that I could say from top to bottom was – was created and built by WCW. I mean, the giant, eventually they fucked him up pretty badly and they let him go and they do the same thing for Goldberg too. But um, yeah, it's just outstanding how they had such amazing talent on their roster. They were the highest television show on, on the air and just, you know, money's just oozing in out of everywhere. And then they decide, ah, fuck it. We're just going to not care anymore. And that's it. They're gone three years later. It's just amazing. Yeah. Another dirty word, uh, creative control. That's another, you know, we we make regular reference. Doesn't work for me, brother. Uh, creative control doesn't work for anybody, brother. Um, the amount of power Kevin Nash managed to, to have, uh, that can't be understated enough, too. Just the... the the irreparable damage he did backstage, despite his his attempts to make it look <laughs> contrary, but that's just you know. Uh, Tony mentioned AEW. That's that's kind of what you want to stay away from. You don't want the inmates running the asylum. You you, you need someone to, to step in and go. You know, this is my show. We're going to do it my way. I mean, again, love him or hate him, Vince McMahon has made that very clear throughout his whole career. All right. Well, if there's one, but, but Kevin, Kevin Nash put over Rey Mysterio, so yeah, can't can't blame Kevin Nash for it. Yeah, you got to put that asterisk there. Well, guys, sure. let's put a cherry on top of this. If there's one thing uh, you would put on the epitaph, the gravestone of WCW, what would it be? Here lies WCW. What what would you say? Let's start with you, Adam. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a quote, a movie quote, and I'm going to put it there. Here lies WCW. Quote, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. End quote. <laughs> nice. Because, you know, Bob also mentioned uh, Ric Flair. You know, crowd loves Ric Flair. You know, I think the very beginning of the last show, 
Hogan was the WWF guy. Flair was the WCW guy. Everybody came to see Flair. And a recurring theme of, of, of these last two shows, Flair just absolutely getting shit on time after time after time. And the fans that still love them, and that's who they want to see, and they continue to shit all over them. Can you imagine if fans did that to Hogan and WWF? But uh, as, as, as Bob just said, a lot of talent there could have gone completely different, but too many stupid BS politics and mismanagement got in the way. So I would say, yep, waste the talent. I could still be here today if anyone had a clue of how to run a company. How about you, Bob? What would you say? Here lies WCW. Adam nailed it. That was a great one. Um, Love that movie. Um, Here lies WCW running a professional company doesn't work for us, brother. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Beautiful. Uh, what about you? What I would do, I would put Here Lies WCW, then have an urn with the WCW logo on it hanging from a pole. Right there <laughs> next to the right there next to the to the uh the gravestone. Cause yeah. If anything would have gotten them there, it's those damn pole matches. So, and then, and then, and then the the urn would fall, and the the red substance would come out of it. Yeah, <laughs> red substance, red, red substance. substance. Oh my god, the red substance. That's where Oklahoma really would have been effective. Is if they had Ed Ferrara screaming "red substance" in, in, in Jr.'s <laughs> voice, then I think they would have had something. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, there you go. That was. The conclusion of our two-part series of the rise and fall of WCW. Hope you guys enjoy that. Like I said, we're going to put this this two-parter out over the holidays. And uh, hope, you know, whatever you guys are doing on the road, you know, just hanging out, whatever. You got some time that you want to listen to our take on what killed WCW. Have at it. I hope you guys enjoy it. And I hope you guys enjoy out there, our loyal listeners. I hope you enjoy the rest of your holidays. Hope you have a very, you had a very Merry Christmas, and I hope you have a very, very happy New Year. We're going to come back at you in the new year, uh, you know, with more and more wrestling goodness for you week after week. I hope you guys uh, are with us for that. So. We're going to get out of here now for the Warsaw Blonde himself, Adam Kolavik, and for the other half of the amazing Lopez Cousins, Dr. Bob Lopez. I'm Tony Lopez. Like I said, have a happy rest of your holidays, people. We'll talk to you again in the new year. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Red substance. Red substance. Good night. (laughs) Good night.